0: and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. (laughs) It's a nice rainy day outside and everybody's all bunched together to keep warm. Good morning, everybody how how are you how is everybody this morning governor welcome to the heritage foundation it's a, it's a pleasure to have you here uh it's a pleasure to ha- to welcome governor mike dunlavy of alaska and he will be speaking on the budget spending and what alaska can provide the nation uh as an example uh governor uh, dunlavy was elected as governor of alaska in 2018 he's had a a varied career in alaska since his arrival there In 1983, uh, from working in a logging camp in uh, southeast Alaska to pursuing his dream uh, in an education career as a teacher. Uh, He has a unique insight uh, into uh, Alaska's Arctic communities due to his two decades of service there. Uh, He also served for five years as an Alaska state senator. So he knows uh, Alaska literally from coast to coast. And that provides not only a unique perspective on his state, but also what can we uh, from the lower 48 can learn from Alaska's example. As all of us at the Heritage Foundation know, um, America's founding fathers envisioned a strong division of power between the federal and state levels of government, what we call federalism. The Constitution created a limited federal government and left much of the power to the states and to the people of the United States. But of course, what exists today uh, is that we have created a highly centralized federal government with states uh, relinquishing much of their reserve powers into the federal government and to also do federal funding. This has allowed the federal government to become more involved in issues that were traditionally left to the states and to local communities. And this highly centralized government is a poor fit for a country as large and as diverse as America. Federalism uh, should allow for 50 different models of governance suited to the particular needs of the nation's individual states. And within the confines of the Constitution, states should be free to enact policies that best serve the needs of their citizens. And in this respect, uh, federalism fosters competition among the states, and competition between states encourages innovation and helps create a more efficient government. As a general principle, the government closest to a problem should be the one addressing it, in our humble opinion. And for that reason, we believe that Congress should leave to the states any program that does not carry out a constitutional function of the federal government. Governor Dunleavy will speak with us this morning about the successes that Alaska has had in promoting federalism through budget discipline, as well as what the federal government may learn from Alaska's experience. And after the governor's remarks, Paul Winfrey, who is our director of the Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies, he will lead a further discussion with the governor and also take questions from all of you. So now please join me in welcoming Governor Mike Dunleavy.
1: Well, thank you for the kind words. And it's a a real honor to be here today. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about Alaska. I'm a former teacher. I was going to ask you to raise your hand if you've ever been to Alaska, but I won't do that. Um, If you haven't, you need to come up. A lot of times, folks like to come up in the summertime when it's a little warmer, but it's a beautiful state. So I can't tell you how nice it is to spend time with like-minded friends uh, here in our nation's capital. Every time I consider the difficulties of balancing Alaska's budget, I'm reminded that it could be a lot worse. I could be tasked with uh, balancing the federal budget. That's the mother of all challenges. And thank you all for the work that you do in trying to accomplish that important goal, fiscal policy and other federalist um, issues. For those of you I haven't met yet, my name is Mike Dunleavy. I was elected as Alaska's 12th governor last fall. I was actually the first governor to be sworn in north of the Arctic Circle. We are, of course, the second youngest state in the nation, Uh, just for reference. um, Candidate for president uh, Joe Biden was about 16 years old when we joined the union in 1959. And at nearly 600,000 square miles of landmass, Alaska is not just America's largest state, it's also one of the largest subcontinents in the Western Hemisphere, to put it in perspective. Over half of Alaska is called the unorganized borough. I always joke around with folks from Texas because Alaska is two and a half times the size of Texas. We used to have four time zones. We are the furthest western state, the furthest northern state, and the furthest eastern state. As a matter of fact, we're so far, so far west, we're closer to Australia than California is. A lot of people love. They have a hard time getting their arms around that. So overall, uh, over half of Alaska is called the unorganized borough, meaning its residents live outside our bor- borough form of government. Boroughs being an Alaska term for counties. Louisiana's parishes, we have boroughs. The rest of the country has counties. So this creates a delicate situation for our policymakers. We're constantly striving to balance the priorities of our, of our quote, big city residents in Anchorage and Fairbanks with those who live out in sometimes the middle of nowhere. And Then we have hundreds of smaller communities and census-designated areas consisting of both Alaska Natives and modern-day immigrants. In fact, only one member of our congressional delegation was actually born in Alaska. Of course, I didn't come here today to recite Alaska facts, although I could do that for some time. I love that great state, this great state. I came here to talk about fiscal policy, something I've been told interests all of you. I took office last December in the midst of a financial meltdown in Alaska. After years of inaction, the annual deficit had climbed to $1.6 billion. To put this in perspective, our, and we're talking state spend, our state spend in Alaska is approximately 4.4 dollars to $4.6 billion. So this was a significant budget deficit. <clears throat> and keep in mind, we're expected to bring in about $2.1 billion in revenue this year. So a deficit of this magnitude was an unmitigated crisis. But it was also an entirely predictable crisis. From 2014 to 2016, The price of North Slope crude plummeted from $110 a barrel to just $30 a barrel. From a peak of $4 billion, state revenues collapsed to just $750 million. Rather than face these revenue projections head on, our state political leadership chose to increase spending during this time. Exaggerated revenue estimates and clever budgeting gimmicks became commonplace, allowing appropriations to hide the true extent of the crisis from the public. This policy of inaction and deception proved to be an unmitigated disaster. For the first time, we were forced to dip into our oil wealth savings account called the permanent fund, just to keep the lights on. Meanwhile, GDP growth stalled, and the last frontier became known as the worst state for business in America. I ran for governor because I, like most Alaskans, believe our state's decline had to be reversed. There's simply no reason for a state this rich in natural resources and pioneering spirit to be considered the worst in anything. To this end, I began my first term by directing my staff to publish a transparent and honest assessment of Alaska's finances. No more deception. No more disinformation. No more time to stall. And when some of our state's big spending politicians decided to ignore these warnings, I utilized my veto power to cut spending by $650 million. This was the largest budget reduction in the state's history and a critical first step towards getting Alaska back on track. My critics predicted doomsday. They figured Alaska would be the end of Alaska. Alaska would slide off into the Pacific Ocean. But they could have been more wrong. According to economists, uh, our three-year recession is finally coming to an end. Our GDP increased by 4.1% last quarter, the second consecutive quarter of economic growth. Thousands of new jobs have been created across practically every sector of the economy, and private sector wages grew by nearly five percent. Uh, We're projecting a 1.1 billion increase in private investment on the north slope this year. And Alaska has so much, so much going for it, in addition to this. A lot of people down here we call this the lower 48 uh, believe our state is that place with a lot a cold place with a lot of oil. Well, it's true but it's only a sliver of the real story. I always tell folks that Alaska is America and so much more. It's a place where you can open business, complete with all the benefits and protections of a first world system of governance, America, yet at the same time have access to vast untapped natural resources that simply don't exist outside of of the third world. I'm talking about the largest flake graphite deposit on the planet a resource currently monopolized by China, mineral endowments of nearly every precious and rare earth metal and mineral there is, an estimated half of the nation's coal, the largest wild fisheries industry in the nation, totaling 61% of all fish landed in the US, and one seventh of the nation's timber, although federal regulations have tragically crippled our logging industry, leaving much of our timber to fall down and simply burn. It's a wasted resource right now. We're also located quite literally in the center of the industrialized world. And this is oftentimes a fact that people have a hard time getting their arms around as well. Our international airport in Anchorage is positioned within nine hours of both New York and Tokyo and serves as a gateway to Asia-Pacific markets. In terms of cargo throughput, our airport is second, the Ted Stevens International Airport, it's second only to Memphis nationally and ranks as the fifth busiest on the planet. And it's growing rapidly in terms of its cargo transport. And believe it or not, the airport is never closed for snow, despite plowing as much as 6 million tons of it each winter. Alaska does a good job of dealing with snow. In fact, aviation is one industry that we expect will be a big part of Alaska's economic future. One in every 60 Alaskans is a pilot, many who fly out of uh, Lake Hood, the world's busiest uh, seaplane base. Additionally, the FAA has designated a portion of the Arctic for unmanned flight research. This area is open to all and is currently being used by organizations like Boeing, BP, and the University of Alaska. Uh, research there has led to breakthroughs in pipeline and Arctic ice monitoring. Plans are also in the works to connect Alaska to Alberta and the lower 48 via railroad. It's a 1,500 mile railroad. Uh, link, opening a historic new trade route to Asia in addition to benefiting Alaska refineries. And Alaska's doors are always open to innovators and dreamers. In fact, you might have seen me reaching out to Elon Musk last week regarding production of Tesla's Cybertruck. They have a testing ground in Alaska, and we want to invite him to come to Alaska, learn more about how we produce resources, how we produce minerals and rare earths, and how we do it probably better than any other place in the world. These are the types of forward-thinking people and businesses we're eager to collaborate with. But despite my optimism for Alaska's economic future, the challenge of balancing our budget has not subsided. This year, we again face a major shortfall of $1.5 billion. Some of this can be traced back to the price of oil, which is expected to fall another $10 over the next two years. And some of it is due to formula-driven spending, which increased by $89 million this year, including debt and pension payments, and fund source, fund source wishes totaling over $160 million, which is driving the budget upward. In fact, over half of Alaska's budget consists of formulas and obligations embedded in statute. On Wednesday, I announced my plan to keep Alaska on fiscally solid ground. This year's budget consists of four overarching priorities. Maintain fiscal discipline, honor the law, tell Alaskans the truth and fulfill the commitments I made to Alaskans when I ran for governor. And these aren't just my priorities, by the way. They're based on feedback I've received from folks across Alaska. These are Alaskan priorities. Of course, I'm preaching to the choir when it comes to maintaining uh, fiscal discipline. But there's a real sense from my opponents that many people no longer understand the dangers of deficit spending. Much of this I attribute to the creeping influence of Washington DC and a debt-embracing culture. Even in Alaska, sources like Twitter help to amplify national politics where debt spending by both parties is commonplace. Borrowing backed by the Treasury's cash printing mach- machines seems of little consequence. Unfortunately, I get to find a printing machine that prints money in Alaska. Fortunately or unfortunately, um, we, are, uh, we have to balance our budgets in Alaska. And the revenue funds, which once held over $16 billion, our reserve funds, our savings accounts, at $16 billion as of 2013, will nearly be depleted after this year as a result of deficit spending. And so this year's budget represents the first in a 10-year plan to contain spending and cut the annual deficit. Most government services will be flat funded, and there'll be no net spending increase with the budget I've rolled out. This is also a budget that will honor the law. In Alaska, we have something called the Permanent Fund. It's a sovereign wealth fund that sh- distributes dividends as well as saves oil wealth for future generations of Alaskans and distributes a uh, annual check to Alaskans and helps as a check and balance on government spending. The more money you save and it's constitution, constitutionally protected, less opportunity is for politicians to get their hands on it. In recent years, politicians have ignored our laws and diverted a portion of the dividend to fuel government spending. This is all wrong. It's also bad policy. I've yet to meet anyone who believes that sp- the government spends money better than individuals and citizens. I even believe the folks on the left don't believe it's good policy. My budget calls for full statutory dividend plus repayment of last year's reduced payout. It also, uh, secondly. Um, We've also fully funded education before joining the legislature. I worked as a teacher and later as a superintendent for nearly two decades in Arctic Alaska Afterwards, I spent a couple of more years as a school board president So I'm intimately familiar with the struggles Alaskans educators face both from the both from the teaching and administrative perspective We cannot move forward as a state while leaving our children behind but it can't just be about inputs how much money you put into a system It also has to be about outputs. How well are our kids doing? How well is the system doing? And finally, I'll be doing my best to change laws that are crippling our budget. As I alluded to a few minutes ago, 55% of Alaska's operating budget is now on autopilot spending. In other words, statutes, laws are driving the spending. And unless those laws are changed, spending will continue. And And I know you folks are fighting a similar battle here at the federal level. If we want to fix the numbers, we must change the laws. But flat funding and adherence to the budget will not be enough to balance the budget in the years ahead. That brings me to another third priority. Tell Alaskans the truth. The boom year is a 15% budget growth, and over, is over. We're facing deficits that nearly, uh, that's nearly the size of the general fund, so our deficits are almost as big as, uh, it's actually, uh, in some cases, it's almost as big as the revenue we receive. It's larger in many cases. It's time for everyone to get involved, and that requires accurate fiscal information being made available to the public. Starting in January, I'll be flying all over Alaska to gather folks' input to get a conversation started regarding potential scenarios to a sustainable budget. These include scenarios such as major budget reductions, changing the permanent fund uh, formula, and a constitutional spending limit. Only through a constitutional spending limit cap that works will government truly have sideboards on spending. Obviously, I have my preferred method. If, you're, if you've paid attention to any news out of Alaska recently, you'll know that I'll always fight for smaller government and a bigger permanent fund payout for Alaskans. But my team has gone to great lengths to lay out each scenario in an unbiased fashion to make sure that each Alaskan has all the facts and that their voices are heard as we plan for the next decade. Which leads me to my next and most important priority. This is a budget that will fulfill my commitments to Alaskans. Many of you may not be aware, but Alaska is facing a crime epidemic. Per capita, we are often ranked the deadliest state in the country for women. Meanwhile, a disastrous catch and release law led to sky high property crime rates in our cities and our towns. I was elected with a mandate to make Alaska safe again. And we made great strides. Last year, We hired more state troopers than than in any other year in the past decade. I signed a landmark crime bill cracking down on sexual predators and a broad array of other criminals. We funded domestic violence programs and shelters at historic levels. And we've cleared a decades-old backlog of untested sexual assault kits. This year, we're expanding our efforts. My budget will pay for an additional 15 troopers, state troopers, and three prosecutors. The Department of Corrections budget will increase by over 17% to cover population growth as well as restorative programs. Finally, the the, uh, judiciary will be fully funded, including additional funding for public defenders and guardians. Public safety remains my administration's number one priority, and the budget reflects that. So far, I've been pleased with the response to my budget announcement. The cuts we made last year were tough. Absolutely, they were tough and necessary, and for many, a serious wake-up call. But from what I'm learning, Alaskans are prepared to hold the line on spending. As you all know, standing alone on your principles is often necessary, but never enjoyable. So I very uh, very much look forward to collaborating with the legislature and the public as the budget process moves forward. Because at the end of the day, there's nothing more important to governing than fiscal policy. You know as well as I do, fiscal policy is future policy. The financial decisions we make today directly shape the world our children will live in tomorrow. And it's my greatest aspiration that the Alaska I leave behind be safer and more prosperous than the Alaska I discovered over 40 years ago. So with that, I want to thank you for allowing me to speak to you today, and I'd be more than happy to entertain any questions. Uh, Neil McCabe, One American News. Uh, sir, if you could, you talked about your election, but could you, for, there's a backstory to what actually happened. That was a crazy governor's race. And can you just sort of talk about that chain of events that, that landed you in this office, which was a, you know, a Democratic wave year? Yes, sure. Thank you. So um, we, uh, our incumbent governor uh, was an independent and um, was still in the race. At the same time, former U.S. Senator Mark Begich jumped into the race, and I was in the race. This is after the primary, and the three of us were running. The uh, incumbent governor, Bill Walker, just a a month or so before the election, actually dropped out for a whole host of reasons. Um, The numbers weren't looking good, and uh, so he decided to step aside. So it became a two-way race at that point between myself and Mark Begich. And the result was that uh, at the end of the election, at the uh, end of the election, the campaign season, we won the race of fifty-one percent to forty-four percent. So we won by a pretty good margin uh, to implement the, uh, the mandates and the agenda that we ran on. Thank you, Governor. Um, I'm Jack Spencer with the Heritage Foundation. You mentioned that one of the issues you're facing is the, um, the regulations that keep your timber industry from being all that it could be. I was curious if you've talked with the, 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 the Trump administration about getting some of those reforms. We know that the, that deregulation is a big issue for, for the administration, and that seems like a, a good place to start um, or a good place to continue, especially given some of the comments that the president has made regarding what um, those regulations have done out west in the lower 48 And what you've talked about, it it does to your your logging industry. Yeah, thank you very much. So I first went to Alaska and worked in a logging camp in 1983. And in southeast Alaska, we have the Tongass National Force, which is the largest national force in the country. Uh, We had a terrific industry. Really, it was a a high-paying family wage industry. And um, that industry was shut down under the Clinton administration. They instituted a couple rules, a couple regulations, roadless rule, old-growth timber rule. In other words, you couldn't build any more roads, and uh, you could not harvest uh, old-growth timber, which basically killed the industry. As a result, that industry died in southeast Alaska. And um, as we stand here today, even though we have one-seventh of the entire uh, the country's entire timber reserves, Rhode Island has a bigger uh, timber industry than Alaska does as a result of that. In having discussions with the uh, Trump administration, as you know, the president really wants to take care of America. Uh, utilize America's resources to make America great obviously and so we've had discussions with the president I've been fortunate that the president stops in Anchorage when he goes to Asia it's the uh, refueling site for Air Force One and we've talked about what to do in the Tongass and he's helped us tremendously in um, uh, working with his secretaries and his folks in his administration to begin the process of rolling back those rules rolling back the roadless rule rolling back the old growth rule um, as a result, we're very hopeful that we will be able to stand up a timber industry. It may not be as large as it once was, but nonetheless, there's plenty of timber. There are 16 million acres of, uh, of forest, roughly. And um, as you know, national forest is supposed to be used for multi-use purposes. It's not a national park. We have a lot of national parks in Alaska. It's a national forest. And what we want to do is put Alaskans back to work. Although our unemployment rate is now at historic lows for Alaska, um, it's still one of the highest in the country. Having a robust, timber, a robust tim- uh, timber, timber industry in southeast Alaska will put thousands of people potentially back to work. Um, it'll get people off of government programs. Also has the opportunity of opening up the Tongass to mining. We have a couple of mines that in, uh, down in southeast Alaska, and we also have some rare earth finds. So he, uh, the, gov- uh, the president and his administration have been tremendous in helping us with that, and we hope to see the, uh, the fruits of all these up- efforts here uh, shortly.
2: Good <clears throat> morning,
1: Governor. Morning. I'm Jack Ferguson and
2: uh, live in Alaska and live in D.C. Good to see you. And I see you. So we have a problem in Alaska with keeping talented young fellows and women to return after their educational years in the lower 48 to bring them back to the state. Part of it is jobs and part of it is uh, just the change of attitude towards what sort of expertise do we need to bring back? Now that we're dependent upon the permanent fund, we need people that are more educated in the financial world with MBAs, other sorts of uh, higher education that could help help with those skills down in Juneau, elsewhere in the state. So I had this proposal, which is like a whammy proposal, where you let any, any Alaskan, you, you loan them a student loan for graduate work in the finance world, if they come back and live in the state for three years after that degree, no matter where they work, you forgive the loan. And so you have entice them to come home. Now I've got two gentlemen right here. Grant, <laughs> they both work for They hate this. Grant Ackerbund who's from Fairbanks, a presidential scholar and Grant Cummings, who's from Anchorage and has a MBA from the university of Fairbanks and so on. And, I, I've had over my 42 years of lobbying here. I've had people like this work for me. They usually come in for two or three years. Charles Christensen, third generation from Anchorage, is not returning. He got his advanced degree from Dartmouth, and the job just wasn't there for him. Uh, Wyatt Perry, you might know the Oni family, uh, third generation out of Campbell Lake, went to Houston, got his MBA out of Notre Dame. We can't get these guys back in, so we need to entice them. What
1: do you think of that proposal? Certainly. um, uh, We've had a program in Alaska where loans were forgiven for high-need areas. Um, We've changed the way we do things at the university. For example, uh, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, we noticed that we had a nursing shortage. And so we emphasized uh, nursing, the nursing program at the University of Alaska Anchorage. That has been uh, very beneficial in providing more and more nursing candidates for the industry up in the state of Alaska. Um, Jack, absolutely, there are things that we can do to um, entice and keep our, uh, keep our young people in Alaska. And that's what we're all about, is trying to build an Alaska for not just this future, but for our kids and our grandkids. And so we're looking at any and all uh, programs and possibilities to keep and recruit good talent in the state of Alaska. And as I mentioned, one of the things that we really want to try and do is provide other economic opportunities. In developing our resources and in transportation, we also believe that we have uh, we have a potential future in uh, in data in data farming in Alaska, um, and you've heard of folks talk about Bitcoin mining, et cetera. But Alaska's proximity on the globe, our resources, uh, our energy, but also um, we believe that we are positioned for the next 50 years in terms of our proximity to Asia. I think bodes well to try and bring more folks to Alaska, but also keep talent in Alaska. So. We continue to work on the programs and the ideas that that you just mentioned, uh, as well as others, to do that. But absolutely, we recognize that when the lower 48 is doing better economically and our young people leave, the chances of them coming back uh, uh, is slim because they're going to be setting down roots in other places. So what you just mentioned is uh, these are ideas that we're looking at.
2: The permanent fund uh, spends $240 million in fees for management of the fund. And there might be as many as, let's say, 12, I'm sure there are more, uh, firms in New York elsewhere that could start an intern program for Alaskans because they are handling our money. And it's a natural way for these advanced degree people to get some real experience in the field. And uh, they used to do it. Uh, they're not doing as much anymore. This was an idea that was brought forward during the sovereign wealth fund uh, meeting in June mm-hmm. and it's easy for these guys. It's, it's nothing for them to underwrite that sort of program. Absolutely. Yep
0: <clears throat> I skip Estes with Alec our uh, unaccountable and unaffordable report has Alaska with the highest uh, per capita pension debt of any state
1: I was wondering what policies you were thinking of to um, save Alaska's public pension programs and save retirement for those employees. Good question. So obviously we need to keep funding and paying off our pension obligations. And I think it was 2006 uh, Alaska changed its pension process. It went from a a defined benefit process to a defined contribution process. So the defined benefit process ended in about 2006, 2007. Um, but again, we, we still have obligations, we still have debt that we uh, have to pay. And Alaska, once again, uh, for folks that don't realize this, uh, Alaska came into the, the union, um, was allowed into the union as a state based upon its ability to develop its resources, its vast natural resources. Because the uh, the discussion at the time was that Alaska had too small of a population to pay, let's say a broad-based income tax or some tax like that. And so where am I going with this? We need to continue to develop our resources. Uh, more and more, we're being hamstrung by um, entities and uh, groups outside of Alaska to try and turn the entire state into a park. But in order to provide new wealth, we need to develop our resources. And with that new wealth, we'll be able to start to uh, more effectively pay down these pension obligations. And so um, with the change of the process in 2006, 2007 to a defined benefit away from it, uh, excuse me, to a defined contribution away from a defined benefit, and with our desire and our ability to uh, produce more wealth through resource development, uh, it's our hope we get a handle on that. We get that paid down uh, um, in a manner that uh, uh, keeps it under control and allows Alaska to grow as a state. Uh,
0: Governor, good morning. Uh, my name is Natalia Minakova. I'm from Russian embassy. Um, you spoke about the budget, but uh, it is not only um, Uh, Spending, it is also revenues. And uh, speaking about the foreign trade, uh, what are your plans for cooperation uh, and, in particular, through Bering Strait?
1: So, the last part of the question, uh, one more time, please.
0: Uh, I mean, uh, what are your plans? Uh, Could you build a bit about it on the cooperation uh, via Bering
1: Strait? Yeah, very good. Very good question. So, um, under uh, your your former um, head of the um, Soviet Union, um, Gorbachev, uh, when the concepts of perestroika and glasnost uh, were being implemented in the late 80s, early 90s, there began a, uh, a collaboration with the Soviet Far East at that time. And um, it kind of withered over time. That is an area that I think um, Alaskans would be interested in um, having a greater conversation to see how we can increase potentially trade between Russia and and Alaska. A lot of folks don't realize, but Russia is basically three, mi- uh, three miles uh, away from Alaska, small island, uh, big dime versus little dime. And so um, that's a conversation I think that's worth having. Probably just grab this mic. No. Sir, you're both a, a governor and an educator. And uh, before coming out, we were talking about the U.S. debt uh, having reached twenty three trillion dollars, and Congress is in the midst of considering or beginning to consider uh, a one point two trillion dollar discretionary spending bill. What messages would you have for Congress within regards to dealing with with our debt at the federal level, uh, drawing on your experience at the state? Yeah, that's a good question. That may be the uh, one of the biggest questions we're all facing. Um, we're facing it as Alaskans and as Americans. The, uh, eventually, the chickens are going to come home to roost in some form or fashion. There is no magical way to deal with um, uh, growing budgets and overspending. There's no magical way. And there's sometimes it's not painless. But the longer you wait, the longer you grow a superstructure of government in which a revenue is having a more and more difficult time supporting it, you're really, um, you're really uh, pushing yourself, in this case, the United States, uh, in our case, Alaska, into a very difficult position, uh, and that something um, uh, something is going to have to give, because you cannot keep spending. You can't, in, in, the, in, the, in the sense of uh, the US government, you cannot keep printing money and expect it to hold its value over time. So from the Alaska experiences, the sooner you can get it under control, the better off you're going to be, not just for this generation, but more importantly, for our kids and our grandkids. Um, and you need to take, you need to tackle that uh, that issue. You need to grab that uh, tiger by the tail sooner than later and deal with it now. Um, I made a vow that when I ran for governor, and I knew what I was getting into. This was not going to be easy. This was not going to be pleasant. But I decided that uh, I cared so much about the state that I was willing to tackle these difficult issues. And they are difficult, but you need to do it sooner than later. And you need to deal with fiscal reality because right now, what we're doing. I think is we are embedding, I hope not, but I think we're embedding a culture of, of, uh, of debt, lots of debt as acceptable and somehow somewhere down the future, somewhere, someone else or something else will take care of it and everything will work out well. Um, that's, I think That's a view I think that needs to change and change sooner than later.
0: Aaron Bax with the Heritage Foundation. Thank you for presenting. Um, just two quick questions. So a big problem here in DC is mandatory spending, the statutory spending that you're talking about. Like, first question, are there any specific ideas you have on addressing mandatory spending kind of across the board and how to fix that? Instead of just doing it on a statute by statute basis, is there some type of concepts you have to try to address across the board and the other thing is, when you have this much debt, are you getting tons of pressure to increase taxes in Alaska?
1: Yeah, uh, two good questions. So we we are going to have a discussion on our statutory uh, uh, items that we need to spend money on, education, Medicaid, et cetera. We also have a discussion on how we want to uh, manage our debt, bond debt, pension obligations. These This is spending that keeps pushing against the ceiling, and obviously, uh, um, creating an issue that uh, I have no control over unless the legislature acts upon it. We've also introduced a, uh, a spending limit, an appropriations limit. In 1981, the people of Alaska voted to put an appropriation limit into the Constitution. They could see that spending was gonna be out of control back in 81. So they voted for that and it actually went in, the legislature allowed the people to, uh, to vote on that, actually went into the Constitution and then it was reaffirmed in 1986. The problem was, that the formulas embedded in that spending limit were pegged at such a steep rate because spending back then was steep, that we would have to be spending 9.7 billion dollars. We're only spending 4.4 now to actually reach that ceiling. So what we need to do with that spending limit, and which we're advocating for, and we're going to be pushing for again this year, is to bring that spending down to about a 4.4, 4.3, uh, in the neighborhood of 4.4, 4.3 billion dollars, uh, in an effort to contain that. If we don't change the formulas, what happens is if you get a spending limit in place, which we're going to advocate for, uh, you have to, uh, you have to uh, somewhat cannibalize internally your programs. In other words, those that are not statutorily protected, you need to move money out of that and, uh, to, fund, uh, to fund the, uh, one, the uh, items that are statutorily protected. So you have to do both. You have to have a realistic conversation. That's what we talked about. You have to lay out, what is our debt? What are our obligations? What are the statutory obligations? and show the people of Alaska what that type of spending is. You also need to really demonstrate to them the benefits of a functional spending cap. So they can see that uh, you can hand politicians in, let's say, to 2% a year in spending. But you've got to show both. Um, it, you can do a, spending, you can do a spending, uh, revised spending limit. It's going to be difficult to manage the overall budget when you're cannibalizing it to pay for those formulas. Um, and so both have to be discussed, and I think both have to be changed and implemented. How do you feel about the Jones Act, sir? Well, that's a good question, isn't it? Um, you know, it, uh, for places like Hawaii, Puerto Rico, Alaska, uh, it um, it has the uh, it has the effect of increasing costs. Um, I'm sure that's an issue that uh, there'll be discussions down the road, but um, it certainly it certainly increases costs for places like Alaska. I understand the the basis for it to keep uh, the ability for us to build our, our, our especially our warships, uh, viable in the United States and our ships. Um, but there is, a, uh, there is a negative for Alaska on costs. Please join me in thanking the governor
0: for his remarks.
1: Thank you. Thank you.